Welcome to the weekly sermon by Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message from our special speaker. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Generations. Well, I'm so happy to be with you this morning to share a word that God has given me. And, uh, but first, I want to introduce you to my, my little family. Uh, you see uh, in the center is our little tribe there, but um, as a grandmother... I blew up the most important faces so that you could see them more clearly. Those across the top, there's Jonah, who's 12, from left to right. Little Matthew, who's 5. Corey, who's 6. And our newest little grandbaby is um, little Miss Madeline Marie. And she just turned one years old. The picture's a little dark, but there she is there. It's a grandmother thing. For all of you who are grandparents out there, you kind of get why I'm going with that. But anyway, that's my family. Well, I'm glad to be with you here. It's a good day to be in church this morning, isn't it? I mean, it's a good day to be in church. Have you noticed how hot it is outside? Yeah? Well, praise God. We've got a beautiful building, a beautiful sanctuary to come in and worship together. And I'm, I'm glad to, to be able to be with you this morning and share that word that God has given me. And you noticed I wore my, my miracle shirt this morning. I wore that because I wanted to remind you and me that miracles happen, right? Miracles, an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention into our everyday human affairs. And isn't it amazing to hear the testimony of somebody's miracle? But isn't it even more amazing to experience a miracle yourself? Isn't it awesome to know that God's not just sitting back on his throne watching us as we struggle in our crazy, complex, complicated lives, but that he's actively speaking to us, and he's moving and intervening in our details of our daily lives when we ask him to be a part of it. When we call, he answers, and when we cry out, he sends help. And the word says of Jesus that he's a very present help in a time of need. And God is reaching into the natural realm of our everyday events to bring change where change is needed. And I wonder sometimes if we miss those miracles because maybe we're not tuned in or maybe we're just not listening to hear his voice. But I'm not going to focus too much on miracles today, but instead I'm going to talk about hope. Not the empty kind of hope that you hear about, that kind of hope where I'm, I'm hoping and praying that something will happen. I'm hoping and praying that maybe something will change. But instead I'm talking about a sure kind of hope. I'm talking about one that's fueled by a revelation of a truth. And thus releases the patience that can wait for the full manifestation. In Romans 5, it talks about rejoicing in hope because this kind of hope doesn't disappoint. And of Abraham, it says, Against all odds, when it looked hopeless, Abraham believed the promise. And what was that promise? He was pushing close to 100 years old, and God told him he was going to have a son. And that seems pretty hopeless. But even more hopeless was Sarah, who in her 80s was be the one that was going to carry that baby. 
But Abraham believed that promise, and he expected, he expected God to fulfill it. And he took God at his word, and as a result, he became the father of many nations. But what happens when hope stops short of the miracle? And that's the title of my message this morning, When Hope Stops Short of the Miracle. And the text we're going to focus on today is in Luke 24, which gives the account of what took place Sunday morning after the crucifixion. You remember Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of Jesus, along with a few other women, went to the tomb, and they found the stone had rolled away, and they were greatly perplexed to find the tomb was empty, and they saw two men who were described as being in shining clothes. And the men told them, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. So the ladies run back to where the apostles are and, and the followers of Jesus, and they told him all that had happened, but you know what their response was? Verse 11 says, their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. And all of them, it seems, was in this state of shock and confusion. They're not sure exactly what's going on. All they know is, is over the last three days, things have not gone down the way they thought they would. So we're going to pick up in verse 13, and we're going to read about two particular guys who... One of them's name is Cleopas, and the other, his friend, is unnamed. But these two guys have been in Jerusalem, and after everything that's taken place after the crucifixion on this Sunday morning, they're headed down the road out of town. And I'm going to read, starting in verse 13, I'm going to read from the Passion Bible of this account. It says, Later that Sunday, two of Jesus' disciples were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a journey of about 17 miles. They were in the midst of a discussion about the events over the last few days when Jesus walked up and accompanied them in their journey. They were unaware that it was Jesus walking alongside them, for God prevented them from recognizing him. And keep that statement in your mind, because that was very curious to me, and I pondered on it, and I sought the Lord about why that was, that God prevented them from recognizing him. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But Jesus said to them, You seem to be in a deep discussion about something. What are you talking about so sad and gloomy? They stopped, and one of them named Cleopas answered, Have you not heard? Are you the only one in Jerusalem unaware of the things that have happened over the last few days? And Jesus asked, What things? The things about Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they replied. He was a mighty prophet of God who performed miracles and wonders. His words were powerful, and he had a great favor with God and the people. But three days ago, the high priest and the rulers of the people sentenced him to death and had him crucified. We all had hoped that he was the one who would redeem and rescue Israel. Early this morning, some of the women informed us of something amazing. They said that they went to the tomb and found it empty. They claimed two angels appeared to them and told them Jesus was now alive. Some of us went to see for ourselves and found the tomb exactly as the women said, but no one has seen him. Jesus said to them, Why are you so thick-headed? 
Why do you find it so hard to believe every word the prophets have said? Wasn't it necessary for Christ, the Messiah, to experience these sufferings and then afterward to enter into his glory? He carefully, and then he carefully unveiled to them the revelation of himself through the scriptures. He started from the beginning and he explained the writings of Moses and all the prophets showing how they wrote of him and how they revealed the truth about him. As they approached the village, Jesus walked on ahead, telling them that he was going on to a distant place. They urged him to remain there and pleaded, Stay with us. It will be dark soon. And Jesus went with them to the village. Now, other translations say he acted like he was going to continue on. And I believe he was just waiting to see what their reaction was and to know the condition of their hearts. Just like us, he gives us the revelation, and then he waits for us to see if we'll invite him into our lives. So they said, uh, so they, uh, joining them at the table, he went on back home with them, joining them at the table for supper, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. Then he gave it to them. All at once their eyes were opened, and they realized it was Jesus. Then suddenly, in a flash, in a flash, he disappeared from their eyes. I have to stop for a minute and just comment. Isn't Jesus amazing? Talk about a superhero. Talk about somebody who is so majestic, but yet he can come down and be with us in the midst of our situation, right where we are. Somebody who is so powerful, yet kind and gentle. How could you not fall in love with this man, Jesus? Stunned, they looked at each other and said, Why didn't we recognize it was him? Didn't our hearts burn with flames of holy passion while we walked beside him? He unveiled for us such profound revelation from the scriptures. Now there's two, a couple of points that I want to draw out of this passage. One is Jesus shows up in the midst of our situations. And two, he gives us the revelation that we need. And to expound on this scripture, let's, let's go back a little bit before the crucifixion. And let's talk about these guys. You see, they had in their mind that the Messiah was going to rescue them. But as I said, none of this has gone down the way they thought it was. During this time, they were under Roman oppression and there was corruption in their own Jewish leadership, and they were being persecuted for being followers of Jesus. They were living under po in poverty, being heavily taxed under this tyrannical government, and things just couldn't seem to get any worse. They had put their hope in this man, Jesus, and they had believed him to be the Son of God and to be the Savior, and I'm sure in their mind they were expecting at any moment that Jesus would summon the armies of heaven. And I'm sure in their mind, uh, they were expecting that he would wipe out this evil empire, uh, Roman empire and wipe out the corrupt Jewish leaders. They were looking for Jesus to give these tyrants what they deserved, and they were starved for justice. Can you just imagine for a moment how they must have felt? Even some of us today, when we think about the current political arena and what's happening in our nation today, wouldn't you just love, if you were honest, wouldn't you just love to see God reach down and slap some of these politicians off their perch? 
And these guys were thinking they were about to see Jesus avenge them of their oppressors, but he surprised them. Instead, he surrenders without a fight to Caiaphas' men. And when he stood before Pilate, he didn't say a word to defend himself. I'm sure the guys must have been thinking he could have at least called down fire from heaven like uh, Elijah did. Or maybe they thought he could cause their Roman palace walls to crumble like Jericho. Or at the very least, he might have thought, they might have thought that he could have led this little band of believers to go and conquer their oppressors like Gideon did the Midianites. After all, these guys were ready for a fight. Take Peter. When they came for Jesus, he was the first to draw a sword and started slicing off ears. And then they see Jesus upon the cross. And when they saw him die, their hope died with him. Can you just imagine for a moment what they must have been going through their minds as they saw him up there on that cross? You see, they didn't have the big picture of God's plan. They didn't understand that the war God was fighting was not against flesh and blood, but it was against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And God is a God who gets to the root of things, not surface issues, but he addresses the root cause of things. And they didn't understand that without addressing the root cause of evil, we would never have the pathway to experience true victory over evil. And that Sunday morning, as they journeyed down the road to Emmaus, they're in the midst of this mental and emotional struggle, trying to reason all these things out. In their hearts, they had experienced truth of the word that Jesus had taught them, and all these experiences that they had shared with him. I mean, after all, they had been with him for three years. They had eaten with him, slept with him. They'd sat at his feet and was taught of him. They watched him minister, and they saw him do these signs and wonders. They knew that he was the real deal. And they remembered when they encountered him for the first time, they remembered something about him, his presence, the very essence of who he was. It captured their hearts. And they were captivated by the teachings and the word of truth that resonated deep into their spirit. Just think back for a moment when you first encountered Jesus. Just think back to that moment when you first believed and you trusted him. You recognized your need for him. And that desire to follow him was birthed in you at that moment. The moment someone shared his word with you or the moment someone prayed that prayer with you, and it ushered you into his presence. And something inside you changed. And that's what caused you to get up in front of a crowded congregation to profess your faith. And fear and embarrassment, intimidation, self-consciousness, pride, none of these things had a shot at holding you back because you knew at that moment that the very thing you needed in your life could only be supplied by him. And at that moment, hope, fueled by a revelation of the truth, was birthed in you. Now, these guys are probably remembering that moment when they first trusted Jesus and their hearts were once full of hope. And they're caught in this struggle with what they've just seen with their eyes as their hope in a Savior was just put to death on a cross. Now, fast forward 2,000 years uh, later, and we're not so unlike Cleopas and his friends. Sometimes we too let our hopes slip away, and we even let it die 
If we're not seeing the answer in the way we imagined it, or we're not seeing it in the timing we expected it, sometimes that mind versus spirit tug of war gets fierce. And what we've seen in the natural gets pitted against what we know in our spirit. And the things we've seen, or the report we've just been given, or the conflicts we're experiencing, or the sadness and the grief that we're feeling, convinces us that maybe God's not answering our prayer. Or maybe he's not moving. And suddenly, our hope gets deflated. And it happens that the moment we begin to question whether God is going to answer our prayer, that doubt now starts to creep in. And doubt will cause hope to stop short of the miracle. Now, maybe you found yourself believing the Lord to rescue you from a situation in your life, whether it's an injustice against you, or maybe it's an illness or a financial crisis, and you're not seeing the evidence of him moving like you thought he would. Or maybe it's a family member you've been praying for, you've been interceding for years now, and you're still not seeing any change. Have you ever felt like your hope is slipping away? Have you ever felt like and begin to wonder, is anything ever going to change? In Matthew Henry's commentary, he says, if hope deferred makes the heart sick, then hope disappointed kills the heart. If you've ever experienced that kind of disappointment, then you know that statement is true. Disappointment is a serious blow to the heart. The pain is real. So much so, it's caused people to give up on relationships with the ones they've loved. And even worse still, disappointment has even caused some to fall away from the church. More often than not, though, disappointment stems from a misdirected expectation. We're focusing more on the how and the when rather than the fact that he will. You see, the fact is that Jesus greatly desires to intervene into our lives. And according to John 14, 13, this is Jesus speaking. He said, yes, ask me anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. And then he reemphasizes it again and he repeats it in verse 14. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. That's pretty clear. So back to the story of Cleopas and his friend, what does Jesus do? In the midst of their hopelessness, their discouragement, their despair, he meets them right where they are and right on their level. He sees they're confused because they don't understand the plan of God and they don't understand the prophecies that foretold of these events. And Jesus cares. He cares that their trust is failing and that their hope has stopped short of seeing the miracle of the resurrected Jesus. And they said again, as we're reminded in Luke 24, 21, we all hoped, past tense, we all hoped that he was the one that would redeem and rescue Israel. Their hopes had been crushed by his death. And then Jesus goes on and he says, why are you thick-headed? Why is it so hard for you to believe? And he goes and he he, he unveils to them all these truths in the word. But then, what does he do about it? When hope stops short of the miracle, Jesus comes alongside to restore our hope and our trust. 
Jesus showed up on the road of Emmaus for one purpose. He knew their hope had been shattered and their trust had been shaken. And there was nothing short of an encounter with Jesus that would restore him. And he gives them the revelation they need to fuel their hope and their trust in him again. And the story goes on to say that they didn't recognize him as Jesus. But as soon as he took the bread, he blessed it and he broke it. Their eyes were open and they knew him. And don't you know at that moment when they recognized him, their hope in him was unstoppable. At that moment, he vanished from their sight. And later they said, didn't our hearts burn as we walked beside him? And by the way, the word Emmaus means the place of burning. Do you think that was a coincidence? Yeah. Hopelessness can cause us to lose sight of God. Why? Because it, we're focused on the problem rather than on Jesus. But hope keeps us focused on Jesus because he is our hope. Their encounter with him began to stir their hearts once again with revelation truth, and hope came alive. Jesus cares when we're struggling to hang on to his promises. He cares when we're confused and we don't understand what's happening. He cares when we're in despair and it looks like all hope is gone. He cares so much that he doesn't leave us where we are in that despair. He comes alongside us to give us what we need to reestablish our hope and to give us the confidence to trust that he will do what he said he will do. There's a story in Mark 9 where the man who comes with the son who's demon-possessed. And the man, uh, Jesus said to the man, If you can believe, all things are possible. And the man said, Oh Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus knows that in our humanness, we struggle with doubt and unbelief. But when we confess that weakness to him, his strength is made perfect in us. So why do some prayers get answered immediately and others take a while? That's a good question. And I'm not sure anyone has a perfect answer to that. But this I do know, that each person has their own unique set of complexities. And no set of circumstances are exactly the same. And sometimes the timing of when we see the full manifestation has nothing to do with God and everything to do with the complexities of that person and the unique circumstances surrounding their situation. For example, I used to be an extremely heavy, addicted smoker. I started smoking when I was in junior high, and by the time I was an adult, I was smoking a pack and a half to two packs every day. I was serious about my smoking. And it just depended on the day as to how much I smoked. I was so enslaved to it. It was the last breath I took at night before I went to sleep. And it was the first breath I took before my feet hit the floor in the morning. And I can remember days that if I only had enough money for either lunch or a pack of cigarettes, the pack of cigarettes won. Because I could do without food, but I couldn't do without cigarettes. And I knew that as a Christian, I had to give up this habit. I knew as a Christian, I needed deliverance. I can't tell you how many times I came to the altar for special anointing to be free from addictions. And I brought my cigarettes and my lighters, and I threw them on the altar, got prayed for, 
turned around, and as I walked away, I turned back like Lot's wife to look with longing upon those cigarettes. And as soon as the service was over, I made a beeline to the store to buy me another pack. And I did this over and over again. And it's not to say that some people weren't delivered miraculously. Some were. Some received deliverance immediately. But that didn't happen with me. I would have loved for God to have taken that habit away from me, to take away the desires and the cravings, to take away that mental stronghold, to take away the withdrawal every time I tried to quit. I mean, I would try and I would go a half a day and then suddenly I couldn't focus, I couldn't think. And all I knew is I need a cigarette and I need it now. And that drove me. It enslaved me. It dictated who I was with, who I went to lunch with, where I went. If they couldn't deal with smoking, I didn't go. God had to work with me different than everybody else. And it was when I went to him and said, Lord, I've tried. I've done all I know. You know I want to quit. You know I want to be done with this. But if it's to be done, it's got to be done by you. And God began to teach me how to be free. You see, for me, I had to learn to be free. Even the Israelites, when they were released from Israel, I mean from Egypt, they were free the minute that they walked away from Egypt. But it took them 40 years to learn how to be free. And a couple of times, they even tried to turn back and go back to that slave. Right? But um, God had to teach me. And he taught me by teaching me about me and my weaknesses and why I had failed in all the times I tried before. Why I succumbed to this habit. Why I turned back to it every time. And in teaching me that, It strengthened me in those areas so that I could learn to resist the habit. I could resist the addictions because God knew, and I later realized, that had he given me a miraculous delivery, the very next life crisis that would have taken place in my life, I would have turned back to them again. But in this way, God knows what he's doing. In this way, I was strengthened. I knew how to resist. I knew how to avoid the same pitfalls that I'd fallen in before. And I had to change things about my life. I had to change my daily habits. I couldn't let my mind drift off and reminisce about how good it was to have a cigarette after a meal or how good it was to chain smoke half a pack with a pot of coffee every morning. I couldn't let my mind go there. I had to change things and I had to change the way I thought. And 20 years later, I've been free from cigarettes ever since. Praise God. When I asked the Lord what he wanted me to share today, what was the main point that he wanted me to get across to you today? I heard in my spirit him say, tell them I can be trusted. Tell them my ways can be trusted. Tell them I am faithful. I'm faithful to my promises. Tell them, have faith of a child. Jesus can be trusted. He is the truth. We all know this. You can ask any Christian, can you trust Jesus? And their answer will be a resounding yes every time. But you ask them, 
Can you trust Jesus with the current situations that are happening in your life right now, today? Can you trust Jesus when you get a doctor's report out of the blue that takes you by surprise and it seems like it could be a hopeless end? Or when your child is caught up in the world? Or when you're in financial crisis? Or when your family is being torn apart? Can you put these cares into his hands with confidence, knowing that he will work them out for good? Can you trust Jesus with these situations without knowing the how and the when? There's something to be said about desperation. You arrive at desperation when you've tried all other options and they failed. When there's no plan B, C, or D, no alternative, now there's only God. And suddenly, you know if it's to be done, Jesus is the one. Because now you know there's no other hope beside him. And in those desperate moments, now you're ready to see him. Now you're ready to hear him. For me, desperation has always put me in a place where nothing else can compete with my time with God. And nothing else is of greater importance. And suddenly, nothing else is able to distract me from him. And I have to say, if it's true that we have to be desperate to make the time to spend with him and to put away every distraction, then may we be kept desperate all the time. Because, oh, how sweet the blessings when he meets us in the midst of our desperation. That's how James can say, count it all joy when you find yourself falling into trials and troubles. You can be in the darkest situation where fear is hovering over you like a cloud and desperation, uh, des- despair is, saturates the air so thick that you can hardly breathe. And hope seems like a vapor that dissipates when you reach up to try to grab it. But all it takes is one personal encounter with Jesus, and suddenly light pierces that darkness, and that cloud of fear is blown away. I want to share a testimony of childlike faith. It's from Dr. Charles Price's book, The Real Faith for Healing. And he's talking about There's two kinds of faith. There's passive and there's active faith. Passive faith says, I believe Jesus can heal me. I believe Jesus has healed others. The work is possible, and I believe that with all my heart. Active faith says, I believe Jesus can heal, and praise the Lord, I am now healed. The promise is mine, and I take it, and I possess it. I'm going to read you this testimony that's in his book. It's called, A Little Child Shall Lead Them. A little girl is on the platform, standing before the pulpit, eager and anxious for the prayer of faith. It's evident that she's been crying, but the tears have been wiped away, and a smile lights her face. How old are you, little sweetheart? I ask. I'm seven, sir, she replied. Do you love Jesus? I'm sure you must, for you must know Jesus loves little children. Tell me, dear, what is your trouble? 
Her answer is a pained expression as she slowly lifts her limb, shows a badly handicapped and deformed foot encased in a large, bulky shoe. Under one arm, however, she's holding something that she seems to value. It's wrapped in a piece of newspaper, and it seems peculiar that she should be carrying such a package up to the platform. What have you in the parcel, little girl? I ask her. Her answer was a change from was a change from her expression of pain to a sweet smile. Slowly, in full view of the audience, she unfastened the string and unrolled the paper, and to our astonished eyes, she presented a new shoe. She held it proudly, and then she quietly exclaimed, I brought it with me so I could wear it home. Faith, faith, faith. Here was faith unsullied, unspoiled, untarnished by the ravages of so-called rationalism that is nothing more or less than gross unbelief masquerading as higher criticism. Here in this little girl was the faith that Jesus talked about as she reached out and stood upon the promises. Sweet, simple, childlike faith. Her master had spoken and she believed. Except you become converted and become as a little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I took that shoe and I looked at it. And then I turned back to the little girl. Her hands, now freed, were being slowly raised to heaven. And her lips were moving in prayer. I placed upon her forehead the oil of anointing and prayed to the friend of little children. And then said, as I finished, my little sister... Receive your healing in Jesus' name. There was no expression of ecstatic joy left her lips, no shout of glory, no word of praise, no exuberance of feeling, no outburst of emotionalism. She just looked at those on the platform and smiled. God bless you, little sweetheart, I said, as I handed her back her shoe. She took it and very deliberately walked over to a vacant chair and stooping over, began to unfasten the shoe on the deformed foot. People watched her in amazement. At once she looked up and smiled. Then with a quick jerk, off came that old shoe. And as she placed it by the side of the chair, she said, I won't need that anymore, will I? She put, on, put that old shoe back on again. She never put that old shoe back on again. When she walked off the stage, it was with her new shoe on the foot that had been deformed. Who healed you, dear? Someone asked. Jesus, she replied without hesitating. She walked to the end of the platform, stopped a moment, and then went on again, saying loudly as she went, Somebody throw away that old shoe, because I won't want it anymore. Out of the audience, the people were sobbing. Strong men who came to criticize stayed to pray. Women whose lives had been centered in themselves waited to kneel at the feet of the friendless prisoner of Pilate's judgment hall and tell him they would serve and love him all the rest of their lives. The little child who led them to prayer and adoration had taught a great audience the difference between passive and active faith. Now maybe you're one out there who's currently in a hard and difficult place right now, and your heart is struggling to hold on. 
And maybe you've been dealing with a situation for a while and you've grown weary with it and it's starting to feel hopeless. Maybe you've never made the decision to trust Jesus with your life, but you're realizing that you need this sure hope, this kind of hope that only he can give you. Maybe while you were sitting out there, you felt him nudge you. You felt him pull you toward you. And you sense something, though you don't know how to explain it, but you know he's talking to you. Well, I have good news for you. Jesus cares about you. He cares about what you're going through, and he has help for you. He has help to give you a sure hope and to strengthen your trust in him. Jesus wants to meet you right where you are, right in the midst of your situation. He wants to walk alongside you in whatever you're walking through right now. And his sole purpose in this message, from the choice of songs to the testimonies to every point that was made in this message today, he wanted to convey to you that he can be trusted, that he is faithful, and all you need is the faith of a child. As the prayer partners are coming down front this morning, If you know that the Lord was speaking to you today, either about a situation that you're struggling with or to surrender your heart to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to stand and acknowledge his invitation to you. I'm not asking you to put your trust or hope in a miracle, but I am asking you to put your hope in the one who is the God of miracles. Will you acknowledge him today? Is there anyone here who would say, I think he's talking to me? I think he was talking to me today. Is there anyone who's struggling with a hopeless situation? And you just need that assurance to hold on to that hope. Because as we sang, as Brenna sang in the song earlier, he's in the waiting. He's in the waiting. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.